a reading from the 83rd Psalm. Every day I call on you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the shades rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness? Or your saving help in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry out to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast me off? Why do you hide your face from me? Wretched and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I'm desperate. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dread assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. From all sides they close in on me. You have caused friend and neighbor to shun me. My companions are in darkness. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, You must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you did not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are the light of the world. And so we ask that you would dawn this morning in the dark places of our lives and that you would open our eyes and open our ears and that you would stir us, that we might wake up, that we might perceive your presence and be stirred to love you. 
uh, to walk in your ways. And so be with us, we ask, and bless us uh, and help us to hear your voice. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. All right. Can I bring my doubts and questions to church? That's the question on the table for us today as we continue the sermon series that we've been making our way through. We're calling Questions That Linger, where we're reflecting on questions that you know, cut through the small talk, if you will, and take us right into the, the important stuff about what kind of community we want to be here at City Church, the questions that help us reflect on our mission, on our vision, uh, what we're going to be all about. And uh, so far through the series, if you've been around, um, you know we've, we've waded into some pretty weighty questions so far. You know, what are we doing here? What's wrong with the world? Why worship anything? Is there any hope for justice in the world? Can I really be known and loved in community? Uh, and if there's anything, hopefully, that's come through so far in the series, it's just this, that we want to be a community at City Church that welcomes your questions. We have questions, and we want to be a community that honors your questions. And we don't just mean by that that we will listen to your questions and respectfully nod our heads while you talk and then give you the answer that we already knew because obviously we already know all that we need to know about all the hard questions. We don't mean that. That's not what we mean when we say we welcome your questions. What we mean is that we want to be a community, a genuine, authentic community that will welcome you into our ongoing journey of wrestling with questions and of seeking truth and trusting God and discovering wisdom together as we listen to the scriptures and as we listen to one another. Our stories, our experiences, our struggles and discern together this way of walking in the way of Christ. And if that's what we're doing, if that kind of dynamic is what we're trying to cultivate here at City Church, then we should actually expect things like differences of opinion or uh, disagreement or discomfort to be actually normal aspects of our life together, right? They're not things to be feared or avoided in order to maintain some superficial sense of peace, but they're things to be engaged with honesty, that we should be engaging respectfully with one another, with this genuine open-mindedness and open-heartedness toward one another, because this is how we grow up together into Christ, as we speak the truth in love to one another and bear with one another in love. Um, if you ever go to therapy or do any of it, one, one of the, uh, a, a refrain that will come up likely is, conflict is intimacy. Conflict is intimacy. Where there is no conflict, you can be pretty sure that there is no intimacy. On the other hand, where there is real conversation, you can be pretty sure that there will at times be real conflict. And what happens, just like in so many interpersonal relationships that remain forever stuck in the shallow end of the pool because people aren't willing to dive in and engage in the kind of real conversation and healthy conflict that would allow us to go deeper with one another, similarly in the church, we see the same kind of thing happening. We opt out of the deep, real, authentic intimacy, the struggle, in order to maintain some sort of superficial peace that just kind of feels more comfortable. 
And so the question before us, what we're really considering, if you want to take this down to the ground level, is like, what are we going to be at City Church? Are we going to be a community where the real talk can happen that produces this kind of healthy conflict and mutual struggling? And so I submit to you right now that the answer to that question has to be yes, or we need to just pack up and go home right now has to be yes. And I think the psalm that we just read, and I think the passage from the Gospel of John that we just read, uh, help us understand just why that is the case. That we must be a place where our doubts and our questions are welcome in the community of the church. But before we dive into our psalm and our gospel, it's probably important to acknowledge, even to confess and lament, that so many people today, both inside and outside the church, uh, would say otherwise, right? Would say, no. The church cannot be a place where your doubts and your questions are welcome. No, because they're dangerous. They might lead to you changing your mind, or they might lead to you changing somebody else's mind. Or no, because doubt is evil, right? It's the root of all evil. It's going to be carrying you away from God or something like that. Or some would say, no, your doubts and your questions aren't welcome. Why? Because they tried it. They voiced their doubts. They voiced their questions in a community, and they saw what happened. Worse, they lived what happened. And they can tell you the story of the painfulness of that. If you listen to the exit interviews, so to speak, of people who've left the church or left the Christian faith entirely, you hear story after story after story of individuals who spoke up about their doubts and then experienced rejection as a result. Those stories are so common among those who've left the church. Man, they could have been actually pushed out, perhaps, pushed out of the community altogether, or just looked down on, sort of demoted unofficially to some second-class citizenship where their occupying space in the church just became more and more uncomfortable over time and they felt like they had to go. So there's stories of those where people who voiced their doubts and questions were met with rejection, but even more common are the stories of those who felt like they never could voice them who felt like there couldn't possibly be a safe space to wrestle with honest questions inside of the church. And so eventually, they just got up and quietly left and took their questions somewhere else. And I think if we want to understand what's happening today in our country as we look at the religious landscape of why there is such a widespread, rapid movement away from the church among young people today, we have to appreciate how real and powerful this dynamic is. When the church becomes inhospitable to the real, honest, hard-hitting questions that real people are wrestling with in their real lives, one of two things will inevitably happen. One is people are going to take their questions and their doubts elsewhere to a community that will welcome them. The other is that people will repress their questions and doubts in order to stay. And they'll pretend like they don't exist. Just sweep them under the rug. And both of these dynamics, I think, are so, so, so shaping in terms of what we see today in the church in North America. You have an anxious staying and an anxious leaving because the church has become a place that has become inhospitable to real questions and real doubts. And the reason 
is because we, the American church, have drunk the poison Kool-Aid of the rationalism of our modern era, and we've adopted a faith that is about what rather than who. It's about thinking the right stuff rather than trusting the right Lord. And when that shift has happened, it has created a monster that basically makes anxious staying or anxious leaving the only real options. Embracing faith and doubt, or embracing doubts and questions rather, and taking them elsewhere where they're welcome, or repressing questions and doubts and pretending like they're not there. But both of our passages of scripture that we have this morning, they they lead us into a way of appreciating that the kind of faith that God calls us to and, and awakens in us by his spirit is not that kind of faith. Faith is not about, primarily, thinking the right thoughts and not thinking the wrong thoughts. Faith, at its core, is about trusting the living God. It's about trust. It's about relationship more than anything. And Psalm 88, that Joel just read so beautifully, is a treasure for us and helps us to appreciate this all the more. Walter Brueggemann says that Psalm 88 is a peculiar theological treasure or problem, depending on how we view it. Because in many ways, Psalm 88 is like many other psalms. Uh, It's a prayer of complaint and lament, and it includes all the normal expected elements of a psalm like that, except for two important ones. First of all, God doesn't answer the prayer. And secondly, there's no turn toward hopeful faith that we see on the part of the one praying the psalm, right? The psalmist doesn't end with a punchline, but still, O Lord, I trust and hope in you. That is absent. The psalm ends in darkness. It is an unanswered prayer of complaint where there is no satisfying resolution. There's just the lingering darkness. The psalm ends where our reading ends. We read the last half of the psalm. It ends at verse 18 with this, with this line, you have caused friend and neighbor to shun me. My companions are in darkness. In the Hebrew, the word in actually isn't there. It's more, it's just my companions are dot, 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 darkness. It's a profoundly painful, lonely, unanswered prayer spoken from a place of unresolved anguish. And this prayer made it into the official prayer book of the Bible. Think about that. This prayer made it into the official liturgy of the people of Israel. It became a prayer that was regularly prayed in worship. It became a prayer that Jesus, as Israel's Messiah, would have taken to his own lips to pray in his own human life, to take to his own lips an unanswered prayer from a place of unresolved anguish, which, of course, we see Jesus himself extemporaneously offering his own unanswered prayer, right? In his own life. Father, is there any other way may this cup pass from me? Silence. The beloved Son of God. Lord, teach us the patience of unanswered prayer. The other text that we have, Jesus' engagement with Nicodemus from John 3, is another powerful uh, moment for us, and I think it helps us see this reality about 
the dynamic of faith and doubt and light and darkness, uh, where Jesus in John's gospel from the very beginning is being presented as the light of the world, right? In him came the light and the life. The darkness did not overcome him. And here we see in John chapter 3, Nicodemus coming to Jesus, the light of the world, but he's coming under the cover of darkness. He's coming in the night. Uh, Is he ashamed? Is he hiding? Is he worried? I don't know exactly what's going on there. But it's something to be actually noticed because John, later in the gospel, actually refers to Nicodemus, like, you know, 18 chapters later, as the one who previously came under the cover of darkness, came at night. So John intends for us to see that as a detail that's important of Nicodemus and his darkness coming to Jesus, who is the light. And what we see is Nicodemus coming to Jesus, not primarily with questions first, right? But he's coming with what he already knows. Who is Nicodemus? He's a Pharisee. He's a very educated theological expert, if you will. You know, he's, he's a, a credentialed, privileged, powerful insider in the religious community. He's, the, he's one of the who's who. He's a, he's a very churchy guy, right? And he comes to Jesus, and he, and he leads with what he knows. Like, we can see that you're, like, from God. Um, but help me understand what's going on with you, right? And so what we see in Nicodemus are actually two really important dynamics. We see his settledness and his seeking. In some ways, he's very settled in his fixed categories, and he, he, he's very settled in what he already believes he knows about what is true about God, what God will do, and what God can do. Yet at the same time, he's encountering Jesus, who seems to fit some of that, but not all of it, and so he's curious, and he comes to Jesus, and he's conflicted about it, so he's coming at night to the light. And we see this dialogue unfold between Jesus and Nicodemus, where Jesus is pushing on him and being like, God, man, you are a teacher of the law. Do you not know this stuff? Do you not know that the day that the people of Israel have been awaiting would be the day when the Spirit would make them alive? Would be the day when God would raise up that, you know, the, the bones from the valley of ashes, right? It would be the day that God would do something new in his Spirit. It's not about being born from the right family. It's about being born from above. It's not about having all the right answers. It's about looking at the Son of Man and putting your trust in him. And he draws on all these Old Testament stories about Moses and the bronze serpent as he lifted him up on the pole, as as the snakes were going everywhere. Really weird old story. Um, But, you know, the venomous snakes were attacking the people, and Moses was supposed to fashion a bronze serpent and hold it up. And the way the people were saved was simply to look and to entrust their well-being in their life to what God had promised and said. And Jesus is saying something similar has to happen with him. That it's not about coming from the right family. It's not about being born with the right name. It's not about having the right answers. It's not having the full pedigree and the credentialing or whether you washed your hands the right way the right number of times or did the right dietary laws or whatever. It's about trusting the one who has come to the earth in Christ. The one who has descended from above to dwell in our midst. In other words, it's more of a who question than a what question, right? Will you trust the Son of Man, Nicodemus, will you? Or will you trust what you know? The Son of Man must be lifted up, and it doesn't do any good to simply know that that's how it works. You have to look. You have to trust. I've benefited greatly from the work of Eleanor Stump, who teaches philosophy um, 
I don't know if she still does, but uh, was professor, maybe is still at Notre Dame, um, unpacking two different kinds of knowledge. Um, in the Latin, scientia on one hand and sapientia on the other. Or if you prefer Spanish, saber on one hand and conocer on the other, okay? One, the former, is the kind of knowledge that we have of things, like the way you'd know how something works, right? Like, do you know what two plus two equals? Do you know how the elevator works, right? Um, it's the kind of knowledge that we get through science or through observation or whatever. The other, though, is the knowledge of acquaintance, knowledge of familiarity, relational knowledge, the way you would know another person, right? We have one English word, know, and so we slip back and forth between those two different ways of knowing, and we use one word to do it, and so sometimes when we talk about what we know and believe and all that, we get in these muddy categories, whereas if we were simply speakers of another language, we wouldn't end up in these places. But it's a helpful category distinction because when God reveals truth to us, he doesn't reveal a list of facts. He reveals himself in person in our world, that the one who has descended is the one who will ascend. Jesus, God in person in our world, who says, I am the way, the life, and the truth. And the faith to which he calls us is, is a faith that is fundamentally not about knowing every factoid about Jesus. We should learn as much as we can, of course. But it's fundamentally about do you know him relationally? Will you trust him with your life? Knowledge of acquaintance more than this other kind of way of knowledge. But the problem is we in the church, in our culture, over the last several hundred years have gotten this completely backwards. We've made faith to be about this other kind of knowledge. One that's about thinking the right thoughts and not thinking any of the wrong ones. And so when we've made faith into be that, based on that kind of knowledge, doubt becomes the enemy of faith rather than a natural and expected companion of it, right? Faith and doubt are not enemies. That's a, the line between those is a false construct that we've drawn on our own because we've misconstrued faith in this way. And the way forward for us is going to be actually to detox off of the poison Kool-Aid that we've been drinking and to enter back into this other way of faith. This is about trusting the Lord rather than simply getting the facts straight. And when we begin to make that kind of shift, all of a sudden the conversation opens up, doesn't it? Because all of a sudden we can trust the Lord together and embark together on that journey and that conversation and still disagree on some of the, some of the things that we think. We can be looking at the panorama of what God has revealed in Christ and you can stand here and I can stand there and we can gaze upon it together and we can perceive different things and we can actually engage in a helpful conversation about what you see and what I see. We can sharpen one another and we can do it non-anxiously because the way you are okay with God is not because you've gotten it all right, but it's because he has you and he's called you to trust him. The way you belong to him is not because you've figured out the right set of things to think, but because the, the God himself has descended to the earth in Jesus and become incarnate and embraced you and me and us and has died the death with us and has been raised to new life for us and draws us into living in the world in him and with him in that way. 
And you're just not going to undo that by getting confused or mistaken about some piece of information. You're just not that powerful, and neither am I. And there's tremendous freedom in knowing that God is not beholden to your figuring him out. So instead of embarking on this anxious, uh, polarizing way of relating to one another where we constantly try to defend our own selves and condemn the other and, you know, fracture the body of Christ into all these little groups where people belong. And like, I know my group's gotten it right. The question is, how right are you? And whatever. And we carve up the body this way. Rather than doing that, we can humbly and courageously embark together into the conversation. We can actually begin to have the real talk. We can actually begin to engage in the healthy conflict where we begin to live with one another more honestly. We begin to live with God more honestly. Now, there are plenty of people who would push back on what I'm saying. And to be fair, they wouldn't be baseless for doing so. A common objection to what I'm saying would, would be like, okay, but what about James 1, 6, and 7, right? But ask in faith, never doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For the doubter, being double-minded and unstable in every way, must not expect to receive anything from the Lord. What about that? Okay, well, it's helpful to recognize that when James is talking like that, he's not talking about what we're talking about. He's not talking about intellectual curiosities or things that we wrestle with. He's talking specifically to people who are undergoing suffering, and he's asking them whether they will trust the Lord in the face of persecution or not. He's saying, as you ask for wisdom in those moments of persecution, ask in faith. Don't doubt him. Believe him. Trust him. He will give the wisdom he promises. It's not a verse that says what many want it to say, uh, who, are, who, are, who would be speaking back against what I'm saying here. Uh, that, that's a passage that's really about something else entirely. Okay, well then what about Hebrews, right? Hebrews 11. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Isn't that some sort of certainty then? Is, is, is what I'm saying in any way uh, contradicting what the writer of Hebrews would say about faith? I would say no. And I heard a wonderful, there was a wonderful interview, and apparently it's not on YouTube anymore. I couldn't find it. Cornell West on Jimmy Kimmel Live like five years ago had this great little segment where he's getting into it and Jimmy Kimmel's asking some really great questions and all of a sudden Cornell West just stops the show and he's like, look, there is a world of difference between rational certainty and blessed assurance. And what the Lord calls us to is the latter, not the former. The blessed assurance of knowing that you can trust the one who has you is so different than the rational certainty that you've gotten him right. So what we need, I believe, to create a space at City Church where questions and doubts are welcome in all the right ways is that we need to actually embark on that life of blessed assurance rather than rational certainty and begin to rest in the Lord who has us. To begin to look to the Son of Man himself, the way Jesus says to Nicodemus, to look to the Son of Man rather than to looking to all the things we've said about him. To begin to engage in that humble and courageous conversation that is rooted in trusting the living God who guides us and who holds us. Because here's the thing. 
there's a big problem with my theology. There's something that I am profoundly wrong about. I just don't know what it is. If I knew what it was, I would change my mind. And the reason I know that that's true about me is because that's been true of everyone ever. Right? There's never been someone who wasn't wrong about something important ever in the history of the world, except Jesus. But, you know, moving through, just moving through history, just look back. Like, is there, has there ever been any community or individual, no matter how wise, that was ever right about it all? No. How could we possibly think we were any different? Of course we're wrong about things. The good news is that's not what it all matters about, right? That's not what it all depends on. It's not our theology that saves us. It's Jesus himself. And from that place of trusting him, we embark on this lifelong journey of discovering more and more what is true. And we, we do. We, we say things. We discover things. We learn things. And we do have convictions. We do have substantive things to say to the world. Of course we do. But we say them humbly. And we hold our convictions with open hands, not with clenched fists, as Tuck often likes to say. What kind of community are we going to be here at City Church? Well, if you go to our website and look on the vision and values page, or if you take a new members class, or whatever we're going to start calling that thing, uh, City Church 101 or, or something, who are we, what makes us tick, I don't know. We don't like the name. We're going to change the name of the membership seminar. But you'll find on our core values... This fifth one is called conversation. And this is what it says. You can find it right there on our website. In our life together, we seek to enlarge and extend the conversation rather than narrow it or end it. We welcome everyone who respects the Christian tradition and will engage their questions of faith, whether they share our Christian commitments or not. We seek to promote conversation around faith and life that is characterized by mutual respect and motivated by a shared sense of need and wonder. Need and wonder. Do you hear how much more beautiful and compelling that is than thinking the right stuff and making sure you don't think any of the wrong stuff? We don't pretend to have all the answers. That would be ridiculous. What we want is we want to walk with you. And we want you to walk with us as friends and fellow travelers on this pilgrimage through life on the earth that we're seeking to do in union and communion with Jesus. That we're seeking to do in the power and presence of the Spirit who guides us in the way of Christ, which is the way of life. And that's something we, we know genuinely by way of knowing him personally. And it's not something we know exhaustively as if we've figured it all out. So it's something we do together. And it's dynamic, it's unfolding, it's mysterious, and it takes courage and it takes humility to embark on that kind of journey together because it requires the courage to enter into a space where you begin to make your own questions and doubts known to someone else and you know the stories of how that's gone so poorly so often. And it requires humility to become someone who doesn't just blow the head off the person next to you with all the things you think you know. It takes humility to be open to listening and learning and seeing something you have not yet seen. But if we engage together this life of shared need and wonder, and we can see that God in Christ has met us right there in that space of our deepest need and has freed us in his spirit to walk with him in the earth, to be just perpetually curious, 
there is such a journey ahead of us together. And there's so much that we can offer a world where people are walking out of the church in droves because they're seeking a community where their questions and their doubts might actually be welcomed. I desperately crave a church that is that and can be that. I have tasted and seen that, the goodness of that God in this church community. And I know that there's so much more that we can do together, so many more ways that we can share that need and wonder together where we can grow up more and more to be this kind of body where the real talk happens, where the real conflict emerges in a way that's healthy and life-giving and real intimacy is happening. And maybe we won't be walking for the doors. And maybe our neighbors who've walked out of the doors might find in us a place where they actually feel welcome too. I think that's what God is calling us toward in Christ, to be a Psalm 88 kind of people, to be a Jesus and Nicodemus kind of people as we embark on this life of conversation on the journey together in and with our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our God, would you, would you free us? Would you free us from all the things that we've saddled ourselves with? And would you free us from all the anxiety that we live with around the places where we might be wrong or, or we, th we think someone else is wrong about stuff? Would you free us from all those things that become an obstacle to the fruitful conversations, the speaking the truth and love by which we know you are growing us up into Christ? And instead, by your spirit, would you stir us up and make us a people who really do come into your presence and into the presence of one another with this sense of shared need and wonder? Would you free us from needing to control everything? And would you allow us to live as wide-eyed, curious children in your world who are free to learn and explore and be changed, who are free to love and to trust you. Would you give us the grace to do that? Would you give us the courage and the humility that it takes to do that? And as you draw us deeper and deeper into the deep end of life with you, would you make us more and more a blessing to our neighbors who have taken their questions elsewhere? Would you give us the privilege of being able to walk with them as friends in a meaningful way and as conversation partners in a meaningful way? We ask that you would do this for us, in us, with us, and for the sake of those we know and love around us. And so we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.